All right, well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum 1 can be found on page 782 in the Blue Pew Bible. Once again, if you have your own Bible, I wish you the best in finding the book of Nahum, Old Testament, prophetic book. If you see Micah, Habakkuk, you know you're in the right neighborhood, but don't be afraid to look at the table of contents. Nahum chapter 1. And as you turn there, I want to start with a question. Don't answer this out loud, but maybe just think about it, internalize it. What would you say is the most important thing about you? What is the most important thing about you? Uh, let's say that you meet somebody and uh, you're drawn to them initially in you know, any kind of relational setting and you kind of think, I want this person to get to know me. I want them to know me. Um, well, if you're thinking in your mind, if they're going to really know me, they need to know this. What is the this? What is the most important thing about you? Uh, maybe you might initially think about it through the lens of a role that you have in life, right? The way that the world kind of defines you, what you do for a living, right? I am a uh, engineer. I am a teacher. I'm a stay-at-home dad, stay-at-home mom. Uh, if you're a student, you maybe think about kind of where you are in high school. I'm, I'm a sophomore at Midland Park High School. I'm an athlete. I'm a singer. Um, perhaps you think about your family status. That's where your mind goes to first. I'm, I'm single. Um, I'm, I'm married. I, I'm a father. I'm, I'm a mother. Maybe your mind goes the route of saying, well, if you're actually going to know me, not just kind of titles, if you want to know me, you need to know the topic that if you bring it up to me in conversation, I'm going to be most passionate about. The thing that I have the most conviction on that's going to unlock me, my personality, if you bring up this, what, what, what is that, this? Like, if you're going to know me, you need to know my view on politics and the way I think a society can flourish in the world. I care deeply about that. Or your key to happiness and fulfillment in life. It's the most important thing about you. Um... Even just coming off that prayer, what you think about the situation playing out in Israel and Gaza and your view on that and your convictions behind that and how you came to it, you need to know that about me. Maybe it's your stance on sexuality and gender in the 21st century or your convictions on dieting and exercise. Um, or I don't know, maybe your analysis on whether the Jets can make the playoffs without Aaron Rodgers uh, when he went down in the first game. All right? Maybe you know, that's important, but not most important. What's, what's the topic that's going to bring out your most passionate discussion? I think many people might think about the answer to that question in terms of their past. Something happened in your past that if somebody wants to know you, they need to know about. Um, perhaps it's something positive. Uh, you beat cancer. You overcame decades of addiction. You want to talk about how and where you grew up and your upbringing. Maybe there was a single opportunity that you were given in life, a crossroads, that you had to make a decision, and you made that decision, and it changed the trajectory of your life. Maybe you think about it in terms of uh, a negative way of your past. If you're going to know me, you need to know the abuse that I endured growing up or the way that I abused somebody else. You need to think about the divorce that I went through, the failure in my career that forced me to change everything about my life. You need to know that I lost a child. What is the thing deep down, if someone really wants to get to know you, you, need, you know they need to know this. Well, from my perspective, as I think about myself, and if I'm honest, as I think about others, I want to be as bold as to say, I think the answer for all of us is the same. A lot of important things that might explain us, but I think there's one thing that's most important for all of us, 
And I agree with a guy named A.W. Tozer, who's an author and a pastor from the first half of the 20th century, when he said this, quote be on the screen, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Again, not the only important thing, or the only thing that, again, might explain us, but I think it is the thing that shapes all the other things. It is the thing that shapes every other important thing about us. And this quote, and this conviction that I have, is one of the biggest reasons why we're preaching through the book of Nahum. My hope, my prayer, is that we would all sharpen our understanding of who God is. Because I think it's the most important thing about us. And in some ways, over the course of this series, and obviously this hopefully happens in every book that we might preach through, but particularly I see it uh, in the book of Nahum, that Nahum will affirm your already true understanding of who God is. In other ways, my guess is, like it has for me already in my preparation of these sermons, Nahum will correct your understanding of who God is. Or maybe challenge the culture's assumptions about God that you learned more from than from his word. But for all of us, may it be that we come out of this series by God's grace saying our view of God has been sharpened. It's sharper now. Because I think it will impact your entire life. And now lead us to chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 7, which we saw five characteristics of who God is. And now we're going to pick it up right in the middle of chapter 1, verse 8. And we're going to take it to the end, verse 15. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are, full, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Well, in these verses, Nahum, if you could pick up on it, we're going to kind of untangle this and try to unpack this. He's addressing two different groups of people in those seven verses. And he's going back and forth. He's addressing God's enemies, whom he will destroy, whom he is against, and he is warning of their coming judgment. And he's addressing God's people, his own people, whom he has chosen, whom he is for and whom he gives comfort to. And his addresses are intertwined, so it's not always crystal clear which one is he talking to, which might feel strange at first because there's complete opposite ends of the spectrum. His enemies whom he will destroy and his people whom he will comfort, but it's not always immediately clear who's he talking to now. But look again at verse 9. Verse 9 is the key to this passage. The literal translation, I'm going to read the literal translation before I read the ESV version again. The literal translation of that verse is, What do you think concerning the Lord? 
What do you think concerning the Lord? Now, some translations, like the ESV, say, what do you plot concerning the Lord, implying that that question is geared to only one of the audiences, to God's enemies, Nineveh, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, But the literal translation, I think, is more compelling and more accurate because I think that's a question that's casted to all people, to his people and to his enemies. What do you think concerning the Lord? And again, our answer to that question, I think, is the most important thing about us. The answer to your question in verse 9 is the most important thing about you. What do you think concerning the Lord? It's a question that serves as a foundation to everything we do, everything you don't do in your life. And I know this morning that nobody comes in a blank slate. Nobody would hear this, a blank slate of what do you think about God? Everyone has a vision of God in their minds. Who is God? You have a vision for that. The question is, where did you get that vision? How did you come to develop it? Has it changed at all over the years? Who gave it to you? I believe that Nahum, as being the self-revealed word of God, will help sharpen it. I think we'd agree if you would meet somebody and they'd say, hey, I've heard a lot about you already. And your next question would be like, interesting. Who told you? Like, would you want somebody to get to know you, really know you through the eyes of someone else? Somebody else told me about you. So now this is the way I think about you. Wouldn't you rather, if you're meeting somebody, say, you know what? I would be like the one to tell you about me. The Bible and the Word of God, the reason why it's had such a prime, primary place in the local church and in our church is because we believe it is God revealing himself and the story that he's writing across history that we all are all a part of. So I think we can all agree that we'd want to know, what does God say about himself first and not hear it and develop our vision of God through the eyes of someone else? So what do you think about when you think about God? And its answer is not just for head knowledge, not just for you to have a good kind of thought exercise here on a Sunday morning. I think the answer to this question is where you will turn to when you need hope in the, in the wilderness. Uh, as Andy prayed, when you're searching for light in the midst of darkness, where do you go? Where do you turn to? What's your go-to? I think the go-to can be, should be, who is God? When life, when life knocks you off balance and fear fills your heart, this is the thing we will turn to. And I want to remind us that when Israel first heard this, uh, the book of Nahum read to them, uh, they were in the midst of deep oppression. They were being oppressed, literally at their doorstep. The enemy was there, powerful as ever. So they're not hearing this after the fact. They don't get the benefit of hindsight. They're in the darkness when they hear this word. And so I want to go through this passage with two main principles. I think there's two main ways we learn about God in Nahum chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Here they are up front. One, plans against the Lord. And then two, plans of the Lord. Both are going to tell us about God. Number one, plans against the Lord. Um, We know that Nahum is speaking to the city of Nineveh. And he's speaking about the city of Nineveh. Because that's how the book began in chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh was a city that rebelled against God. uh, That in the process of this being written was in the midst of brutally oppressing others, multiple kingdoms. At this point, again, they are at the peak of their powers. A city that is being told by God he will make a complete end of them while they're at the top of the food chain. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the historical context of Nineveh, but I do think getting a flyover, just a brief flyover, will be helpful for us to see what is going on, why is this so significant, and why is God speaking against them in such an aggressive way. 
Um, many people, when they think of the city of Nineveh, think about the story in the book of what? Jonah. But the story of Nineveh, while it's most well known there, does not start there. So here's the flyover. We first hear about the city of Nineveh in the book of Genesis, early on. Genesis chapter 10. Moses is, is listing out Noah's descendants. Uh, Noah is kind of this kind of recreation of the world. After the flood, he kind of starts over through Noah and the family line of Noah. And Noah has a son named Ham. And of the sons of Ham was a man named Cush. And then we pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 10. It will be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. I mean, pretty cool. Okay, he goes on to say he was a mighty hunter, all right? So Nimrod, in your mind, man's man, mighty hunter, first one on earth to be considered a mighty man according to the perfect word of God. And then, verse 11, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And then it goes on to list other cities that get listed all the way through verse 14. And as the Old Testament storyline goes on, Nineveh becomes known primarily for its great wealth, power, and prestige. From the beginning, Nineveh is wealthy, it is powerful, it is prestigious. And we know that's not a bad thing in and of itself, to be wealthy and powerful and prestigious. But the thing is, cities are often like people. That when you do experience wealth and power and success, you tend to think of yourself as untouchable, top of the food chain. And in that time, not always, but often, it is easier to drift from God the more powerful you get, the more wealthy you get. It's more tempting to see yourself not as getting a blessing from God that you are to steward, but that you become a replacement for God that you get to reign. Because you're wealthy, and you're powerful, and you're prestigious. And so often, a little bit at a time, you just drift from God. The more that happens. And so Nineveh finds itself far from God throughout the Old Testament. And then it becomes the well-known place where the prophet Jonah was sent by God to preach. And Jonah runs away from this call. Many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. right? He runs from that call. But the thing revealed in Jonah that gets overlooked so often is that Jonah did not run away from Nineveh because he was afraid of Nineveh. Why did he run away? He ran away because he was afraid God was going to save Nineveh. He didn't want that. Nineveh didn't deserve that. He did not think Nineveh and all of its uh, wealth and power and prestige was worthy of God's grace. It would have been unthinkable that God would be so gracious to them. And he knew what, what kind of God was. A God merciful and gracious, which we saw last week. And so he ran. But God dramatically brings him back, as you know. And Jonah goes reluctantly. And Jonah preaches the gospel effectively. And we read in the book of Jonah that the Ninevites, against all odds, humbled themselves and repented of their sin from the king on down, it says. Citywide revival. So, timeline-wise, that was somewhere around 760 to 750 B.C. Now Nahum is writing this about 80 to 100 years later. It's nearly universally agreed that Nahum was written between 664 B.C. and 612 B.C. So about 100 years later, and what we see is that while Nineveh experienced true renewal, true revival, 
it failed to pass that faith on to the next generation. So that three generations later, Nineveh has descended into such darkness once again. But not even just being wealthy and prestigious and powerful. But at this point now is far worse. Now they are the embodiment of not just wealth and power, but of violence and brutality and conquest. Eighty years later, just like that. Now I need to take a quick aside here because there is a sober reminder for us there. Tucked in Nahum 1. That let us be reminded, Grace Church, as the people of God in this place, in this region. Let it be a reminder for everyone in the church today, in every city, in every location. Of the vital importance of intentionally passing on the faith to the next generation. That is like top of the list of what we're called to to do here at Grace Church. Is to pass the faith along to the next generation as far as God calls us to. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the Bible speaks so much about generations. I mean, starting in the book of Genesis, what we just went through and all the way through, you just often find like a pause in the text and just a narrative of lists. He fathered him, fathered him, fathered him, fathered him, fathered him. And you just go and you're like, oh my gosh, and like, what are we doing here? It's kind of nice when you hit that in your Bible reading plan, though. You can cruise through those lists. And then you get to the beginning of the New Testament and the arrival of Jesus. How, do we, how are we told about that in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, in the book of Luke? A list of generations, showing us not just historical context, not just the fact that the whole gospel is rooted in real history and real people and real places, which is true, but also to show us that God's providential plan to restore his creation through his son is accomplished through generational faith being passed down. So a couple practical points for us here, if I can. Um, first, to those who are here this morning or listening who have parents with children still in their home. Of all the mission fields God's calling you to, of all the ways that you are gifted, no mission field and no gifting is more important than the mission field and the gifting and the calling of your own living room. The intentional discipleship of your children, teaching them who God is, Right? Sharpening their image of who God is as God has revealed himself. Who's going to teach them? We will teach them at the local church, but if you're relying on Grace Church to be the only place that your kids are going to learn who God is, it's going to be a struggle for you. Who's going to tell them of how valuable they are as image bearers? Created in God's image. You know what that means. Can you, can you tell your children? Do you look at them? Do you speak that into their life? Speak that over them? Who's going to warn them of how serious sin is? Not just in their own life and the consequences, but how it's a rebellion against God. And then who's going to show them how beautiful grace is? If not you. Let it be for us parents that we're not just going to teach them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, but we're going to show them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good. Both are so important. Don't just have them say, hey, this is what's true. you got to believe it. In our family, we believe this. This is true. Yes, affirm truth. But show them it's good. Show them the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ. We know that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that you as parents are not responsible for your kids' salvation. Um, meaning you can't boast if your kids are quote-unquote good kids or if they're walking with the Lord. And you can't feel shame if your kids are not, because that's not on you. 
but you are responsible to prioritize their discipleship for their good and for the general, generational faithfulness of the people of God. So that includes you being equipped to disciple in the home, and that includes you prioritizing their involvement in the community of the local church, that you yourself are involved with the community around you, and that you're involving them, and that you're showing your child's life the value of Christian community in their life, the Sunday gathering. We commit to the Sunday gathering. We commit to ministry throughout the week, and I would just say this, as children get older, and again, as Andy just prayed from kids' ministry to youth ministry into middle school and high school years, parents, where does your emphasis on the accountability of their engagement with their faith community stack up against your emphasis on their commitment to their school or commitment to their sports? Not unimportant things. It's not an either-or, but oftentimes as kids get older, the emphasis from parents can detract on church and involvement with the faith community as teenagers and elevate school and sports and extracurriculars. Where does your emphasis lie? So that's one practical point. This is becoming a not-so-short aside from Nahum chapter 1, but we're going to keep going to number 2. I'm going to break here. Can I ask Megan to maybe go turn on the air conditioning? I'm seeing a lot of people fanning themselves. I know I'm sweating up here, and that's, that's usually a me thing, but um, if we could get that going. Second, I want to go from parents to the whole church. Um, of all the things we're called to steward, Perhaps none is greater than our stewardship of discipling the next generation in our midst. Of all things we're called to steward, nothing is greater than our stewardship of discipling the next generation in our midst. Um, we talked about the numbers. Again, I did not tell Andy what to pray this morning. Right? He just brought this up on his own. Uh, but we have about 120 to 130 kids at Grace Church per Sunday. What a calling for our church. Uh, can I ask, how have you been entrusted with God in pursuing the intentional discipleship of our children, do you pray for them? Do you pray for the kids you see running out and running back in? Can you engage with them? Uh, can you join one of our teams to teach them? What a calling we have as a church. And I'll just go as far as to say this, if I can be so bold. A church our size has about 450 plus people coming on a Sunday. Um, Megan, as our director of family ministry, and Francis and Kara and Joy, um, they should be turning people away to serve because they have too many. They should be saying, we have too many people coming forward to teach. And I'll just be honest with you, it's not the case. It should not be a case where they constantly need more, desperate for more. And we have an incredible team of members and tenders who serve in our Sunday morning teams. Over 100. And I'm telling you, church, we need more. We need more. And we should collectively lament if, as a church, we can't adequately staff those who team with the amount of people we have the weekly gathering is not the only part of our church, but, the, but Sunday morning prioritization of our serving is there for all of us. It's a calling on us all. And you don't even have to be called to kids to feel like you're called to kids' ministry, to serve in kids' ministry. You're at a church that has a lot of kids, so you're called. And you can fill that gap by God's grace. So let's get back in. Let's get back in. Generational impact at 100 years from now. Scattered across the church, kids who rose up at Grace Church and they went across the world. That you say you played a part in the generational impact of passing that generation and that faith to the next generation. All right, it's going to go back in. All right, I'm going to keep this awkward and ask my wife if she can get me some paper towels because I am dripping up here. All right, <laughs> sorry, live stream. This is not smooth. I don't want my sweat to be a distraction to you, but I'm going to plow through. Back to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. At this point in the narrative, uh, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire has already taken the northern ten tribes of Israel into exile in 722 B.C. 
They've already threatened Judah in 701 BC in ransacking the temple. You can read 2 Kings 19 and 20 to see what was happening while Nahum was written. What happened in 2 Kings 19 and 20 is what's going on in the context of what Nahum is writing. But they are, Nineveh is continually expanding its size. It's getting bigger. It's getting richer. It's getting more powerful. And in its own documents we have from Nineveh ruins, uh, they are boasting in the fact that they are conquering everybody. Brutally. Boasting in their tactics. And all the while, what's happening? Verse 9. Nineveh is planning against, plotting against the Lord. Nineveh is laughing at the idea that there's a God who is sovereign over them, a God who is, quote-unquote, in control. Look how powerful they were. And so their own success has become their blind spot. They are at the peak of their powers. Thanks, babe. You're the best. They're at the peak of their powers, and so they figure their high peak is overlooking everyone else's. And so as Nahum speaks against the Assyrian Empire and the culture that upholds it, He exposes the source of the problem that we all face. Here's what I need you to dial in. Verse 9 exposes the problem that we all face. It is a natural disposition to plan against the Lord. Um, On any given day, we are exposed to the evil that is all around us. We are exposed to fallenness. Lately, we're exposed to the news of civilian lives being abused, taken advantage of, killed in the name of war or power. We read of children being caught in harm's way. The headlines are all out there for you, as much as you want to consume. Ones that enrage us most and get the most attention, and in some ways, rightfully so. But the source of that evil is what we could call glory hunger. The source of that evil is glory hunger. To seek glory, to seek fame, to seek power and prestige. And that glory hunger, it's not just found in empires from the ancient world. It's not just found in terrorist organizations from the modern day. It's not just found in corrupt institutions and criminals. It's found in all of us. A glory hunger. Amen. It's found in each one of us. There's a quote I want to put up on the screen. It's a guy from uh, Russia in the early 20th century. His first name is Alexander. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. But he became an outspoken critic of communism in the early 20th century. And he says this. He says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And the Bible reveals that that line is there because you're drawn to glory. And evil at its core in the world and our own hearts is sourced in glory hunger. And we feel it. We feel it every day, that, that line that's just tearing us in either direction. It's the, one of the reasons why you and I are always striving for more. That so often, it's just never enough in life for us. We just want more. We want different. We want, we want more power. We want to feel more secure. We want to feel more beautiful. We want to feel more significant. Everyone wants to be significant. And the insidious nature of glory hunger, especially within the church, is that we can often see God as a means to grow our significance. And we see an angle here. I can use God and get on the shoulders of God to make me look bigger in our serving, in our preaching, in our leading. All the while, it's a glory hunger that's fueling us. And those with glory hunger seek to use people instead of serve people. It's a big sign that other people are a means and a tool 
that we can use to benefit and uplift us and not people to be served first and loved first. These are all plans against the Lord. A desire to rise above them. A God to be conquered. Can you see yourself in that? Can you resonate with that like I can? Always plotting, always planning on how we can climb the ladder of significance in the world's eyes. And then the thing is, if you go up that rung, what happens is you always just see there's another rung to go higher. There's somebody else around you. They're even higher. And so we become impatient with others, angry with others, because we see others from uh, keeping us from accessing that next rung of significance. They prevent us from reaching what we want in some way, and so we get angry with them, impatient with them. And now we need to eliminate them or replace them or manipulate them or conquer them in order to keep going. What I want us to see, church, is not to shame us, but to see that the core desire we want is to feel whole. That's the core desire behind glory, hunger. You want to feel whole. But when you do it in your own strength, apart from God, it leads to chaos. It leads to what we can call evil. And it's the source of every problem that every person has. Which is why I don't think this question is just posed to Nineveh, but I think it was also posed to Israel. What do you think concerning the Lord? Because it implies, what do you think concerning yourself? How do you see yourself? And what Nahum 1 shows us is that in God's justice, he will not allow those who pursue their own glory to prevail in the end. That's really the message of Nahum 1. Those who pursue their own glory will not prevail in the end. And God's not saying this out of kind of childish pride on his part or kind of ego. Rather, he's saying this because of the evil that glory hunger promotes all around us. This is the prophecy for Nahum, that, 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 that you are brutal right now, but this will have an end. And it will be just, and it will happen in his divine timing. But if you go through Nahum 1 again, you see repetition of the finality of this judgment. It's glaring in Nahum 1. Verse 8, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. Verse 9, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Verse 10, they are consumed like stubble fully dried. Verse 14, from the house of your gods I will cut off. I will make your grave. Verse 15, he is utterly cut off. There will be no doubt. And this is the result of all plans that go against the Lord. And so, church, if you are going to cling to faith and walk in faith in hard times, and you're going to endure that all life has to throw at you, you will need the confidence that God will have the final say over anything and over anyone that plans against him. So now we got to go to number two. From plans against the Lord to plans of the Lord. Um, while much of the book of Nahum and what we've seen in chapter 1 is an exposure of evil, uh, there are always flashes of light in the prophets. Flashes of light that reveal the plans of the Lord in the midst of the darkness. So if you're ever reading the prophetic books or studying the prophetic books, look for the flashes of light. They are among the brightest you will find in the entire Bible. Uh, because just as a candle shines more brightly in the middle of the night than it does on a sunny afternoon, so too God's goodness shines more brightly in the midst of darkness. And we remember that Nahum means comfort. It's the name, the meaning of his name. And so brothers and sisters, what is the key to having hope in the midst of darkness? 
I think it's understanding the plans of the Lord for his people. And I want to finish by showing you two flashes of light in Nahum chapter 1. If your Bibles are still open, look again at verse 12. It will also be on the screen. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Number one, first flash of light, God is in control. God is in control. No matter how bad things seem, God is sovereign. That means he is in charge. Full control. We sang it this morning. He's always working. Even when we don't feel it, he's working. Even when we don't see it, he's working. And the Bible is full of stories that point to this truth, that illustrate this truth, that in the midst of chaos and destruction and pain and panic, God is in charge. He does not ordain evil, but he is sovereign over even evil. And he uses it to accomplish his will, to provide for his people and to punish his enemy. God is in control. Uh, You have the story of Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph? He was sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife, thrown into jail, left for dead for years and years and years. Not just a bad day, not just a bad week, years and years of suffering. And God used it all, all of it. He used all of it to prepare him and place him in a position to not only save himself, but to save his family. A family that God has chosen that would grow into a mighty nation, a family through which the Savior will come. And so at the end of Joseph's life, at the end of the book of Genesis, and with the benefit of hindsight, he says this to his brothers. It will be on the screen. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is a verse to know. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What we see in Scripture is that you are responsible for the decisions you make. All people are. Evil will be seen and will be experienced. The city of Nineveh will be held responsible for their rebellion against God. And God will overrule and God will fulfill his plans in punishing them. But he never abandons his post as king. He never abandons his post as being ruler of all things. God is in control. Church, it's one thing to hear that on a Sunday morning and to nod your head at it. It's one thing to think about it in general. It is another thing to see that phrase and to breathe it in when you feel like you're being suffocated by life. This truth is oxygen for the soul that you breathe in to keep you going. God is in control. Last one. Look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Number two, the second flash of light. God brings peace. The desire I spoke of earlier, that desire for hungry, that glory hunger, the desire for something bigger to be whole, The reason why we so often try to make a name for ourselves, here's what we need to know. The desire is good because it was placed inside you. You were created with it. But the way we often try to satisfy that desire is bad because it is robbed by glory hunger. 
So here's the overarching story of Nahum, and in some ways the word of God, okay? If you've kind of tuned out, tune back in for this. Here's the whole sermon, ready? The desire is glory, the problem is sin, and the solution is grace. Desire is glory, the problem is sin, and the solution is grace. Because the only glory that can satisfy your soul, the only glory that can make you whole, is that which comes from God. It's the satisfaction of God in you. It's the love of God for you. It's the only thing that will quench that hunger and that thirst and not wear down over time. So if that's true, how do we get it? How does it happen? This is what separates the gospel contained in the word of God from every other worldview you'll come across, from every other religion or non-religion. It's this, that the God you planned against is the God who plans for you. It's the dividing line of the gospel from every other truth claim out there, that the God you plan against is the God who plans for you. Surely out of his goodness and his mercy, behold the feet of one who brings good news. That line is identical to another prophet, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. It says the same exact thing. Many commentators think that Nahum and Isaiah knew each other. They were contemporaries of one another in writing their prophecies. And in Nahum 1, the good news that's spoken of is the context of judgment upon evil and the end of evil. But in Isaiah 52, it's directly linked to the arrival of a Messiah. I don't have it on the screen, but just follow along here. Uh, Isaiah 52, 7 says this. How beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then the Apostle Paul, hundreds of years later, takes that language and he applies it to the gospel in Romans chapter 10. And he applies it to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God who became one of us. The one who is the yes and amen of every promise in the Bible. The one whom, to whom grace is given and the one through whom grace is distributed. The problem of sin is overcome. The desire of glory is fulfilled in him. Look at the screen, Romans 10. Paul ties it together for us. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Flashes of light in the darkness. That God is a God of grace. Who extends the life and death and resurrection of his own son to cover your shame. The God you planned against is the God who plans for you. And he takes your shame so you can have his honor. And now you're untouchable to death. You're untouchable to evil of conquering you in the end 
Because sin and death and evil will be utterly cut off, as it says in AM1. This is hope in times of distress. And it frees you from the shackles of having to cover yourself with glory in this world. It frees you from having to use others and empowers you instead to serve others. And then through your life and through your words, you become the very feet that preach the good news that came to you. So in Christ, Grace Church, keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows. And always look for the flashes of light. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that your word provides for us, especially when the darkness sets in. We thank you that your word is what we need when fear rises in us, because your word reveals you. And when we feel the utter pull of glory hunger, Father, show us the flashes of light. Show us that the desire we have for glory is good, but is often misplaced. Show us that the solution is grace. Grace found in your son, Jesus Christ, broken and crucified for us, so that we might be whole. So that our hunger might be satisfied. And that we could set our entire selves on glorifying your name and making your name known. Lord, let it be true of Grace Church. Let it be true of us, that what comes to mind when we think about you is the most important thing about us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand together as we respond in song and prepare for the Lord's Supper.